Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Alice Wynn. On her debut novel, In Memoriam. Alice Wynne grew up in Paris and was educated in the UK. She has a degree in English literature from Oxford University. She lives in Brooklyn, where she writes screenplays. And today we're going to be talking about Alice's debut novel, which is In Memoriam. Alice, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, can I get you to tell us how you would describe the novel? Oh, I usually describe it as gay poets in the trenches, which is not really accurate, but I think gets across the main ideas to someone who might not be interested otherwise. It's really about these two boys at an idyllic boarding school in the English countryside who are very close friends and are both secretly in love with each other and what happens to their relationship when they go to the front. And how did the how did it come about, the book? I was trying not to write a book when I wrote it. Um, I had written three novels and not succeeded in finding an agent, and I was deciding that maybe it wasn't working out. And so I was working on screenplays, and I was procrastinating when I uh, got it into my head. But I had been reading some Robert Graves, um, Goodbye to All That, and in it he talks a lot about Siegfried Sassoon. And Siegfried Sassoon went to my old boarding school. And so I just sort of got it into my head. I was like, oh, I wonder if he ever wrote any poetry about the school paper while he was there or in the school paper. And so I um, I noticed that the school had uploaded a lot of the school papers and I went looking and actually he didn't um, write anything in the school paper. He, he wasn't very keen on the school. But once I had found the school papers, I got sucked in by the editions that were published during the war because they're these student papers written by the students for the students. And I read all of the papers from 1913 to 1919. And you can tell that this is like the act of someone who is like feverishly procrastinating on doing actual work. And I um, just loved them. Um, I mean, I, I became kind of obsessed because, yeah, they, they begin in 1913 and they're all fun and games. And it's these funny, irreverent, sort of stuck up, conceited naive schoolboys who believe they're going to inherit the earth and they're you know writing up cricket matches and debating societies and then the war breaks out and they're so excited and they can't wait to go and enlist and then they all start enlisting and then they start writing letters back to the school from the front you know in the letters they're talking about how much fun it is not to have to wash and then they start to die 
And it is the boys at school who have to write the in memoriams, the obituaries for their dead friends and brothers. And so the, the paper really, really shifts in tone. And the obituaries become, they also change. So at the beginning of the war, they're, they're kind of, they're very, um, I don't know, they're, they're very naive again. You know, it's a lot of them talking about how gallant the deaths were and how, you know, we envy him, his noble death, that kind of thing. And then as the war goes on, it, it just becomes impossible to maintain that sense of optimism and, and um, hopefulness. And they, they just become so incredibly bleak and sad. Um, and for instance, there's this letter that one of alumni writes back to the paper in maybe 1915. And he says something like, you know, oh, the, the 16th was an awfully sad day. I had not realized what it would mean to see all of my friends dead and dying around me, you know, and they just, they're so upsetting to read because unlike most war literature, which is um, usually written by someone who has processed a trauma they have gone through in order to try and um, help someone who wasn't there understand what it meant to be there. These papers were written by people who were going through a trauma for other people who were in that same trauma. So you feel like a voyeur when you read them. And I just became completely like feverishly obsessed with them. And uh, the book came out of that obsession. We've all done that thing where you you, you find yourself in a, a tiny village somewhere in England and you, you find a war memorial and there'll be like a surprising amount of names listed on that war memorial for a place that's so small. And you reproduce some of these newspapers from the, the, the papers from the school in the book at key points throughout the novel with the lists of in memoriam. And the numbers of boys that are alumni of these schools that are dying is absolutely shocking. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you brought up the war memorials. You know, I, I'm in America and I think uh, to Americans, World War One seems sort of niche. Um, it's this sort of weird war that like, why would you bring it up? It's like the 30 years war or something. It's very distant. But when you are in the UK, uh, you know, I was in a small Welsh village over New Year's. And, you know, it's a Welsh village of maybe a thousand people. And there was a war memorial and there were 20 names on it from World War One. And you just think 20 able-bodied men in a village of a thousand people. That is that is huge. So it has left this scar. I mean, maybe they were just really good at um, memorializing it. But, you know, it, it's very hard to not notice the impact of World War One when you're in England uh, or the UK in general, I think, because because of those memorials. And my old school, uh, I believe today it has about 800 students and 749 students and alumni were killed in the war. So that's that's almost the entire population of the school. So you went to a similar school, you went to Marlborough, which is a, a similar school to the school that the boys go to in the book. So let's talk about how different it would have been in 1914 to, to when you attended. The school in the book is is fictional. Um, but obviously, I was very inspired by my own time at Marlborough and also at, by specifically by these um, these newspapers. I can't say exactly how different they were. I mean, I think, you know, one difference, for instance, is that the school in the book is an all boys school. And I think one thing that is interesting to me is the difference between how homosexuality was expressed at schools in, you know, in the past versus nowadays. I did as much research as I could about this. Obviously, it's all very oblique. You know, you're not going to find like, you know, a gay man's guide to 1914 boarding schools. But you do find authors that talk sort of sideways about how they experimented at school. You have 
Alec Waugh um, wrote The Loom of Youth in 1917, which was about his experiences at Sherburn. He had been expelled from Sherburn for homosexual exploits. And uh, we have to kind of read between the lines. But he does talk about this culture of, you know, as long as you're doing it in the dark, as long as no one finds out, as long as you're popular and good at sport, it's sort of okay, which I thought was really interesting. And I, I think it is really different from nowadays, partly because the school was co-ed when I was there. Um, and also, even at the um, single sex schools nowadays, they just are less isolated from the other sex. You know, even if you're at Eton, you are meeting girls. I think because it was it was so unthinkable to so many people, like in, in Maurice, in the early uh, 20th century, I think that homosexuality was um, considered so completely um, out of left field, so so weird. It was something that, you know, no normal person would be homosexual. It meant that men could kind of almost be more affectionate towards each other without being seen as gay. Do you see what I mean? Whereas yeah, I think that's nowadays... exactly what I was going to ask you, because yeah. it's, it's almost like nowadays, like you would think of this in terms of prisons, in that men in these schools in those days could perform homosexual acts on each other in terms of affection and because they wanted to but if you suggested to them that they were themselves inverts as they would be called then a lot of them would be outraged and and that comes out in the book that our two main characters who are what we would now describe as gay are both very much in denial of the fact that they might be that even though they are both happily going about exploring their sexuality at school in that way Yes, I think that's right. There's this scene in Maurice where, uh, by Ian Forster, where Maurice confesses uh, his homosexual inclinations to his family doctor. And the family doctor's like, don't be ridiculous. Like, you're a normal guy. You're not like some, you know, weirdo flashing people on a train. So you're not gay. You know, that's really the kind of, that's the the sort of way he sees it. And I think, it, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and but I think uh, on, on the flip side of that, it did mean that, you know, you, you do read about, you know, men at Oxford and Cambridge in this time period kind of walking arm in arm or arms around, again, lots of hugging and so on. And I think it was kind of above reproach in a way that I think now you would see that same show of affection and you would uh, assume sexuality to it because we're such a hypersexualized society. So so I don't know, it, it, it's definitely very different now from how it was then in too many ways to count, really. And of course, it's not just people thinking it's odd. Obviously, remind us what the legal status was of homosexuality at this time. Well, so it wasn't decriminalised in the UK until 1967. So, but it wasn't, it was not, it was was hard labour, I believe. So, you know, you weren't going to be hanged. But, you know, in 1895, Oscar Wilde is famously sentenced to hard labour. So that's the kind of, that's the legal state. It's... It's completely illegal and it will bring like just terrible shame upon your entire family and everyone you know. And we've talked about it in term, in homosexuality in terms of the school, but what about then subsequently in the armed forces? Were you able to find much archival material that, that sort of suggested what was happening when these boys were enlisted? Well, it's something that I deal with a little bit in the book because at the boarding school, as we've discussed, there are these sort of uh, secret rules whereby, you know, as I said, if you're if you're popular, if you're good at sport, if you do it quietly and no one finds out, it's sort of okay. A lot of people do it. In the army, however, if you're found out, you could be court-martialed and, and possibly executed. 
so it's the stakes are, are really really different and uh with both my characters who are teenage boys i think it's very hard for them to actually understand you know the the immensity of the risk that they take by acting on on their feelings and elwood especially elwood is um the character who is uh, more romantic and uh, optimistic at the beginning of the book. And I think for him, he just has this feeling of like, well, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, really, what's going to happen? He just doesn't understand how dangerous what he is doing is. We haven't really spoken about the two main characters yet. You just introduced Elwood. Let's talk about Gorn, first of all. Tell us something about who he is. Henry Gorn is half German. Uh, he's not terribly popular. He's a bit of a loner, and he's really quite against the outbreak of World War One. He's also a boxer, so he he deals with any um, conflict in his life by just thumping people. So he's he's a sort of a, a bit of a um, paradox in that sense, and that he's like a violent pacifist. And his only friend, really, his closest and only friend, is Sidney Elwood. And Sidney Elwood, uh, by contrast, is one of the most popular boys in school, and he. You know, he can't wait to go fight. And the thing that kind of forms the basis of their friendship is that they are both quite academically inclined. Gaunt is obsessed with Thucydides, the the Greek writer, and Elwood is, you know, fascinated by the romantic poets. And I think that they, they both like viewing the world in this slightly romantic way through the lens of, you know, the past and through the lens of art. So they have that to bond over. And then, of course, they're both uh, secretly in love with each other, but they both believe their love is unrequited. And you mentioned he was half German. So again, what is the the status of a British person of German descent towards the outbreak of the of the First World War? Well, I think it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. You know, there had been a long, long peace. And so I think when the war begins, it's sort of surreal. Uh, I seem to remember reading an anecdote about a dinner party, like a, a formal dinner party in London, where there was a bunch of sort of German aristocrats having dinner with a bunch of English aristocrats. And then someone comes in with a telegram being like, you know, there's a war that's broken out and everyone just kind of looks at each other and they're like, oh, should we start like stabbing each other with our forks? Like, how does this go? And they decide to kind of finish the dinner and it's this sort of sad, uncomfortable, well, now we're at war dinner party. But, you know, the interesting thing about um, contemporary literature is that um, this war, it was hard to predict on which side the UK, you know, would go. It wasn't straightforward. I think a, a lot of contemporary writers uh, talk about how they sort of thought that Britain would join Germany and fight against France. And uh, I think they felt quite a lot of um, similarity with Germany. So I, I think it was a very strange a strange atmosphere um, for a half German, half English character to be dealing with, uh, especially because Gaunt has a kind of ambivalent relationship with his Germanness. Uh, he's fond of it, but he's also, he feels very, very English. And I think he feels very othered by the way that people suddenly start kind of accusing him of, of having all these German sentiments. And Elwood, you mentioned, is he's, he's a poet. He's the more romantic one. And he's also, he's... Jewish, but again, this is a time, and obviously these people are all, you know, these are all like the officer classes, boarding school boys, they're all sort of like upper class boys. And this is a point in history where 
it's not really the done thing for somebody of Elwood's class to be expressing outwardly Jewishness. And so his family has sort of like gradually shed that over the last few generations. That's right. He's uh, culturally Christian and ethnically Jewish, and he has a very kind of tortured relationship with that because I think, again, like Gaunt, I think this is something they have in common. It makes him feel like this sort of insider-outsider. Sometimes he's part of the in-group, and then sometimes out of nowhere, he's out of it. He's Jewish. Um, He kind of sometimes is English, sometimes is Jewish, depending on how other people feel rather than how he feels. And I think, you know, throughout the book, sometimes he feels a bit wistful about his heritage, you know, and he he does sometimes wish he could connect with it more. But then it also feels like something that prevents him from fully belonging uh, in, in the country of his birth. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alice Wynn. We're talking about her debut novel, In Memoriam. And Alice, this is a book about our main characters are of the officer class. We see class issues in the novel. Mainly um, there's a a character called Hayes, who's another officer who comes from a a less posh background, who is um, constantly passed over for promotion, even though he's like probably a lot more capable than a, a lot of the public school boys but it's interesting to see one of the, one of the things that surprised me i mentioned you know the war memorials in the in the first half and the um the in memoriam sections in the in the school paper that are threaded throughout the book and it's interesting to see in the novel that the the public school boys are thrown into the the meat grinder of the um of the trenches in exactly the same way as the um short stunted working class boys from the east end 
It's an interesting war because I would say that in a lot of modern wars, it feels as if, you know, the people who've taken the brunt of it have been the working classes. If you look at Vietnam, for instance, that that was a, a, a real a working class war for Americans. But in World War One, the upper classes died at much higher rates than the working classes because they were expected to join up as junior officers. And junior officers were the first to go over the top, right? They would lead their men over the top. And so while their their experience at the front was was much less uncomfortable, you know, they would have had a servant, um, they would have had someone cooking their meals, they would be much less likely to have to carry really heavy packs. But then on the flip side, they really did die at higher rates. So it's an unusual war in that sense, because I don't know many wars that I have studied where the upper class died at higher rates than the working class. Usually it really is the foot soldiers who take the brunt of it. Which is not to say, you know, that it was all it was all a laugh for the privates. I mean, they were. I mean, it was a really, really bloody war. You know, there was a, a lot of death across the board. Can you tell us something about writing about that? Because the book does have some sequences of of quite, you know, bleak graphic violence when they're in the trenches. Yeah, you know, the first draft I wrote, I um, kind of skated over a lot of it because it's actually very hard, or it was for me to imagine the ways in which a person can be wounded or killed by machine guns. Um, you know, I think in my first draft, people just sort of got shot in the head or the heart. And what I then did is, as I, you know, I read a bunch of contemporary sources, and uh, the most helpful for the violence was Ernst Younger's Storms of Steel, Storm of Steel, uh, which is this really kind of uh, dispassionate account of a, of a German stormtrooper. And, you know, someone gets killed or injured on almost every single page of this this book. And the ways in which they get killed or injured are so unfathomably varied. And I, as someone who has grown up blessedly in a time of, of relative peace, it's impossible for me to understand or to have known that you can be shot in the head and survive and shot in the leg and die in 10 seconds. You know, that's not something that we know the way these soldiers would have known. And so I lifted almost all the the violence directly from primary sources because it was unimaginable. And then on the the converse of that, there's a we won't talk about why it features in the in the book in terms of the plot, but there is a sequence in the book that's set in a German prisoner of war camp, and we see again this is a, a prisoner of war camp for officers, and the way that the officers are treated by the Germans, the guards, and the commandant, it's. It's almost comical when one then thinks of how prisoners of war camps or, you know, certainly like Russian prisoners of war, for instance, would have been treated in the um, in the Second World War. Um, if anybody who's seen the, um, the the great Renoir film Grand Illusion, they'll have some sort of idea about this. But tell us something about how an officer in a prisoner of war camp in the First World War would have lived. This was a revelation to me when I was writing it. I knew a lot about the front just from having read The War Poets. The Western Front, that is. But I didn't know anything about the prisoner of war camps. And uh, they were hilarious. I mean, it, it is absolutely bizarre when you read about them, because it's like they're fighting a different war. They're fighting some kind of like chivalric, you know, like courtly war where, I mean, you know, these officers, as long as they signed a piece of paper promising not to escape, they were allowed to go on walks through the countryside. You know, they they would get sent these packages of meals from the Red Cross and the German prison guards were starving and the English officers, the British officers were were just, you know, living it up with their with their amazing rations. 
they were constantly escaping but if they if you know if they were caught they were probably just going to be put into solitary confinement it, the, the stakes are so strangely low at these prisoner of war camps and i got most of um my research most of my research involved this book called um the escaping club by aj evans uh is that his name aj anyway evans and um it's such a funny book because it's comical these camps are just funny and i wanted to get that across and you mentioned that book and the earlier book about the um the the varied the, the multifarious and varied deaths that one could one could have but what other perhaps novels have you used as reference when writing this book? I, I use novels much less. Um, I really mainly use memoirs and, and contemporary sources. I guess I, I did read all of um, all three of Siegfried Sassoon's autobiographical novels. He wrote six books, ultimately. He wrote uh, about, about his experience of the war. He wrote three autobiographical novels and three memoirs. I didn't read the memoirs. I read the novels. They, they came first. But they're very, very closely linked to his own experience. In terms of novels, I mean, you know, Birdsong and Regeneration are such amazing novels. I really, really love them. Uh, more recently, David Diop wrote um, an incredible book about a Senegalese soldier at the front. Uh, it won the International Booker, I think, in translation. So um, those are all things to check out written by, by later writers. But yeah, I, I mainly focused on, on memoirs, I think. So to finish it off then, Alice, can I get you to read us a bit? Of course, I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. Chapter one. Elwood was a prefect, so his room that year was a splendid one, with a window that opened onto a strange outcrop of roof. He was always scrambling around places he shouldn't. It was Gaunt, however, who truly loved the roof perch. He liked watching boys dipping in and out of Fletcher Hall to pill for biscuits, prefects swanning across the grass in court, the organ master coming out of chapel. It soothed him to see the school functioning without him and to know that he was above it. Elwood also liked to sit on the roof. He fashioned his hands into guns and shot at the passers-by. Bloody Fritz. Got him in the eye. Take that home to the Kaiser. Gaunt, who had grown up summering in Munich, did not tend to join in these soldier games. Balancing the prosciutto on his knee as he turned the page, Gaunt finished reading the last in memoriam. He had known seven of the nine boys killed. The longest in memoriam was for Clarence Rosevere, the elder brother of one of Elwood's friends. As to Gaunt's own friend, an enemy, Cuthbert Smith, a measly paragraph had sufficed to sum him up. Both boys, the Prosciutian assured him, had died gallant deaths, just like every other Prosciut student who had been killed so far in the war. Ow, muttered Elwood beside him. Auf Wiedersehen. Gaunt took a long drag of his cigarette and folded up the paper. They've got rather more to say about Rosevere than about Cuthbert Smith, haven't they? Elwood's guns turned back to hands, nimble, long-fingered, ink-stained. Yes, he said, patting his hair absent-mindedly. It was dark and unruly. He kept it slicked back with wax, but lived in fear of a stray curl coming unfixed and drawing the wrong kind of attention to himself. Yes, I thought that was a shame. Shot in the stomach. Gaunt's hand went automatically to his own. He imagined it opened up by a streaking piece of metal. Messy. Rosevere's cut up about his brother, said Elwood. They were awfully close, the three Rosevere boys. He seemed all right in the dining hall. He's not one to make a fuss, said Elwood, frowning. He took Gaunt's cigarette, scrupulously avoiding touching Gaunt's hand as he did so. Despite Elwood's tactile relationship with his other friends, he rarely laid a finger on Gaunt unless they were play-fighting. Gaunt would have died rather than let Elwood know how it bothered him. Elwood took a drag and handed the cigarette back to Gaunt. I wonder what my immemorial would say, he mused. Vain boy dies in freak umbrella mishap. Investigations pending. No, said Elwood. No, I think something more like, English literature today has lost its brightest star. He grinned at Gaunt, but Gaunt did not smile back. 
He still had his hand on his stomach, as if his guts would spill out like Cuthbert Smith's if he moved it. He saw Elwood take this in. I'd write yours, you know, said Elwood quietly. All in verse, I suppose. Of course, as Tennyson did for Arthur Hallam. Elwood frequently compared himself to Tennyson, and Gaunt to Tennyson's closest friend. Mostly Gaunt found it charming, except when he remembered that Arthur Hallam had died at the age of twenty-two, and Tennyson had spent the next seventeen years writing grief poetry. Then Gaunt found it all a bit morbid, as if Elwood wanted him to die, so that he would have something to write about. Gaunt had kneed Cuthbert Smith in the stomach once. How different did a bullet feel from a blow? Your sister thought Cuthbert Smith was rather good-looking, said Elwood. She told me at Lady Asquith's, last summer. Did she? asked Gaunt, unenthusiastically. Awfully nice of her to confide in you like that. More they won, said Elwood, standing abruptly. Capital sort of girl. A bit of slate crumbled under his feet and fell to the ground, three stories below. Christ, Elwood, don't do that, said Gaunt, clutching the window ledge. Elwood grinned and clambered back into the bedroom. Come on in, it's wet out here, he said. Gaunt hurriedly took another breath of smoke and dropped his cigarette down a drainpipe. Elwood was splayed out on the sofa, but when Gaunt sat on his legs, he curled them hastily out of the way. You loathed Cuthbert Smith, said Elwood. Yes, well, I shall miss loathing him. Elwood laughed. You'll find someone new to hate. You always do. Undoubtedly, said Gaunt. But that wasn't the point. He had written nasty poems about Cuthbert Smith, and Cuthbert Smith, Gaunt was almost certain it was him, had scrawled Henry Gaunt as a German spy on the walls of the library cloakroom. Gaunt had punched him for that, but he would never have shot him in the stomach. I think I believe he'll be back next term, smug and full of tall tales from the front, said Elwood slowly. Maybe none of them will come back. That sort of defeatist attitude will lose us the war. Elwood cocked his head. Henry. Old Cuthbert Smith was an idiot. He probably walked straight into a bullet for a lark. That's not what it will be like when we go. I'm not signing up. Elwood wrapped his arms around his knees, staring at Gaunt. Rot, he said. I'm not against all war, said Gaunt. I'm just against this war, German militarism, as if we didn't hold our empire through military might. Why should I get shot at because some Austrian archduke was killed by an angry Serb? But Belgium... Yes, yes, Belgium atrocities, said Gaunt. They had discussed all this before. They had even debated it, and Elwood had beaten him, 596 votes to four. Elwood would have won any debate. The school loved him. But you have to enlist, said Elwood, if the war is even still on when we finish school. Why? Because you will. Elwood clenched his jaw and looked away. You will fight, Gaunt, he said. Oh, yes. You always fight. Everyone. Elwood rubbed a small flat spot on his nose with one finger. He often did that. Gaunt wondered if Elwood resented that he had punched it there. They had only fought once. It hadn't been Gaunt who had started it. I don't fight you, he said. No this out on, said Elwood. I do know myself, said Gaunt, lunging at Elwood to smother him with a pillow, and for a moment neither of them could talk because Elwood was squirming and shrieking with laughter while Gaunt tried to wrestle him off the sofa. Gaunt was strong, but Elwood was quicker, and he slipped through Gaunt's arms and fell to the floor helpless with laughter. Gaunt hung his head over the side, and they pressed their foreheads together. Fighting like this, you mean, said Gaunt, when they had got their breath back. Wrestle the Germans to death. Elwood stopped laughing, but he didn't move his forehead. They were still for a moment, hard skull against hard skull, until Elwood pulled away and leant his face and took Gaunt's arm. All of Gaunt's muscles tensed at the movement. Elwood's breath was hot. It reminded Gaunt of his dog back home, Trooper. Perhaps that was why he ruffled Elwood's hair, his fingers searching for strands the wax had missed. He hadn't stroked Elwood's hair in years, not since they were thirteen-year-olds in their first year at Breshute and he would find Elwood huddled in a heap of tears under his desk. But they were in upper sixth now, their final year, and almost never touched each other. Elwood was very still. You're like my dog, said Gaunt, because the silence was heavy with something. Elwood tugged away. Thanks. It's a good thing. I'm very fond of dogs.
So I've been talking to Alice Wynn. We've been talking about her debut novel, In Memoriam, which is out now in the UK from Penguin Viking. Alice, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.